You are listening to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This podcast is hosted by retired corrections officer, Mark DeWolf, who will discuss various topics prevalent to corrections, gay culture, arts and entertainment, as well as current events. Listeners need to be advised that this podcast will discuss situations involving extreme violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and murder. Details of actual events have been modified so as to protect the privacy of involved parties. Welcome back to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This is episode 33. If you haven't done so already, I recommend that you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or just one of those if you don't have all three. Lots of additional information and details about our podcast on social media. Now, today we're going to be talking about a very special aspect of the state prison, and it's crucial because, as I've said before, the state prison is kind of like a miniature city, and every city must have a hospital, so the state prison has the infirmary. And a lot of the things that happen with inmates with regular illness, medications, x-rays, that sort of thing, is handled in-house, and that cuts down your cost and your risk of having to transport inmates to different medical facilities throughout the area where the prison is located. Today we're going to be talking with Officer Joe, and Joe spent some time working in the infirmary, and he has some great stories to share with us today. Without further ado, let's talk about the infirmary. Officer Joe, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So the infirmary is kind of like a different animal. And for those people that have never been in prison, you know, good on you. Inside the prison, it's, I've always described it as kind of like a city in and of itself. Of course, every city is going to have to have a hospital. And so the prison in Draper had the infirmary. Now, most units have like a medical room because you don't want to constantly have to bring inmates to and from their housing units for regular medical calls. They'll send somebody out to do simple sick call requests and med disbursement in the units. When it is a little more demanding and they need to see a doctor, they need to get x-rays, that sort of thing, then they have to be brought over to Wasatch to the infirmary. And then there was another one, right, Joe, over in Temp. Tempanogos had their kind of own little miniature infirmary, but it wasn't like the Wasatch one, right? Yeah, they had one, and so did Olympus, where they actually, Olympus had, as you know, they had cells where inmates could stay. Temp did not have cells for inmates to stay overnight, but mm-hmm. the, the main Wasatch one definitely had cells for high and low risk offenders. The one in Wasatch, that was 24 hours a day. There's medical staff in there, nurses, PAs, med techs. Yeah. And so anything that happens on a unit, like if there's something that's some type of medical emergency at two in the morning, medical will respond to the housing unit. And then they make the decision, I guess, with the nurse, whether to bring them over or how to proceed depending on what's happening with an inmate's medical issue. Yeah, exactly. And so we we would see uh, all sorts of fun stuff that would happen. Um, (laughs) And I like to think that the infirmary, I'm, I'm sure like every unit in the prison 
when you work the graveyard shift versus a day shift, they are, no pun intended, night and day. The infirmary was, I, I got the opportunity, I guess I could say, to work uh, graveyards there. And the day shift in the infirmary was one of the busiest places in the prison because you had all the doctors and people having coming for dentist visits and routine checkups. And at night, it would be uh, feast or famine, <laughs> where... Uh, probably similar to your, your graveyards on Olympus, where sometimes you'd have quiet nights and other times everything would, uh, the shit would hit the fan all night. Joe, exactly how long did you work in the infirmary? Um, I think it was about two and a half years. A decent chunk of the time I was at the prison. I was at the prison for seven years. Okay. Um, I do have to say, though, listen to one of your previous podcasts. I know you spoke with someone about how they always put the dumbasses on the uh, utility squad. I started out as utility, so I don't know what that says about me, but... Uh... But, Joe, you got to understand, if you start out on the utility pool, that's no problem. But if you work there for 30 fucking years and you're still a utility, that says a lot about who you are. So you got nothing to worry about, man. Some of the stories you've got, you guys have already told on this podcast, I recognize that those people were a special breed. You're probably thinking, oh, I knew him, or oh, I remember her. <laughs> you know, that's one thing about working at the state prison, and Joe, you can attest to this. There is never a shortage of staff stories when you work in that place. <laughs> and those are probably the best stories. But back to the infirmary, I got to say the smartest thing that they ever did is actually bringing in their own dialysis machines and eliminating that whole back and forth up to the University of Utah where they used to have to bring inmates, and they were transporting them several times a week. But if you just look at the sheer cost of your transportation staff and the vehicles and all the logistics of moving these inmates back and forth for a required medical procedure, because the liability had been really high if they missed any dialysis, that was a very smart decision on behalf of the department. Yeah, I, did, I didn't have a ton of experience with that except for when I did shifts in Olympus because mm -hmm. um, we didn't, at night, we would never run dialysis on somebody. Those were always appointments. I can imagine the cost that would be associated with that with after Steven Anderson and having to have two officers for transport. I mean, if you were having to take up, I think there were probably like six or seven inmates that I know of that were on dialysis in the mm -hmm. prison. So if you multiply that by the number of officers and three times a week, I mean, I think it was a smart move. <laughs> sure. So in your time in the infirmary, I'm sure you dealt with a lot of uh, strong personalities when you have to deal with doctors and nurses. What was it like, the politics of... Not, not a ton, um, honestly. I think that most of the staff, when I worked there, most of the nursing staff and medical staff had gone through the academy. So they were certified staff. I know they stopped doing that for some of the medical teams. Mm -hmm. um, they understood some of the rules and things around it. I would say probably the biggest pushback I had was we did have a nurse out there that wanted to have us in the room with her at all times, regardless of what procedures were happening. Once we had somebody, they would be in shackles to the wall. They would have handcuffs on, which are then also shackled to the wall. So those inmates were not going anywhere. It wasn't something where we had to sit there and babysit them when they were doing a procedure. Sure. Um, I did have some pushback from this one nurse who told me that she had, had promised her husband uh, that she would never be in a room alone with an inmate. And I politely brought it up with my chain of command and said, maybe she's in the wrong field. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no doubt. That's, that's not something where I can sit there and babysit all night when I've got other things I need to do. But for the most part, 
we didn't really have too much disrespect from them. Some of the nurses, we I had one that he actually used to be a sheriff up in Park City area. And there was a time when an inmate tried to get aggressive with me. And this nurse actually pinned the inmate to the wall before I could even get to it. Wow. So they definitely uh, had our backs and we had their backs. There, there was some politics involved. I know we would get stupid things from our chain of command because medical needs X, Y, and Z. And they would, I'm sure, have the same thing from us of, you know, we can't do this because of security issues. I think overall, in my time, I worked well with them. You know, it might have been more of an issue at Olympus because you had not so much nurses and uh, med techs and doctors there, but you also had a lot of therapists, a lot of more great. I know that there was a couple that didn't really like these rules. It did a lot of make a lot of sense and it was disruptive to a therapeutic environment. Yeah, there was definitely some politics at Olympus. That's probably more of an issue there than the infirmary. In fact, I had one, I think it was a deputy warden, this deputy warden, and she was working on like some type of therapy license or level of education outside of work. And she had to log so many hours. So she was working with female offenders and she definitely didn't like to be told what to do. And like the unit could be locked down because of an incident and she didn't give a shit and she would pull rank. And that's the politics. But I know that I got under her skin because I had done a commercial for the Mormon church and it was playing all the time on the TV. I was just an actor in it. But the inmates, of course, loved it. And they would if, like if quote, the church if the church only knew, Mark. I know, right? Uh, any, <laughs> I, I any, didn't know you had a commercial. <laughs> anything happens on the TV. Anything happens in the movie. So what yeah. happened was though is that like they would they would give me a hard time and they would quote me and stuff. And I know that really got under her skin the fact that i got along really well with the females at that time period when all this was taking place she had no clue she had nothing to worry about with me and any female but i know that <laughs> yeah it, it was one of those situations where the personalities a lot of times with this it was just a deputy warden but a lot of those therapists and stuff sometimes they could get really irritated and that became more challenging than dealing with the inmates it's just the egos of these assholes <laughs> Absolutely. And I, so from my experience with the medical staff, I don't know if this was necessarily true on day shift, but I do know on night shift, hearing the, uh, the discussions between the nursing staff, that normally the person who was over at Olympus, because they would keep one nurse over there all the time, uh -huh. was not always the uh, best and brightest. You may, in your experience, have been dealing with people that necessarily weren't the best with inmate relations or staff relations, and they just kind of were cast aside. There's a possibility that your experience was a little different than mine. <laughs> yeah, as you know, Joe, I never worked the infirmary as a regular shift. I never was assigned there. I only did overtime shifts there. It was not my favorite place to work, but I remember if there was overtime shifts that came up, it really was not a difficult post to work. But again, you're around people, <laughs> the eyes of the world are on you and people are coming in and out all night long. Of course, you had slow nights and that sort of thing. I did work in the infirmary, I remember, the night that they did the execution on Ronnie Lee Gardner, because of course there was overtime throughout the entire prison because they had so many staff on duty and of course the whole place was locked down super secret squirrel shit as an execution was taking place but i remember that there was 
the way that the place was designed is you would come in off the Wasatch corridor and then you had some waiting areas and then you come in and you're looking at the nurses station, which is like this big room in the dead center. You had some exam rooms on the right. And then you had some hallways with offices on the opposite side of the nurses station. You had the two hallways, one for like your mentally ill stuff. And then your, your patients, your regular patients, like terminally ill on the, in the other hall, right? Yeah. So we, we called it the medical side and the psych side. Okay. Um, yep. And the psych side had inmates who were either actively suicidal, homicidal, or if they were classified level two inmates, regardless of if they were there for a medical reason and they were coming from the UNAs, they were going to be on the psych side because of security issues. Mm-hmm. And then the medical side was we had a, a few inmates that were there long term, but most of those beds were transitioned. It was somebody coming back from a surgery and needed a couple of extra days of observation or somebody who was coming in from a county jail and they were going to do like some hospital things. Like we would get a lot of people that would transition in and out of there and stay there for a couple of days. But I mean, we did have a couple of inmates that were paraplegic, quadriplegic that just lived there the entire time I was there. Wow. Um, I know that, you know, occasionally in the prison, there was some pretty bad fights. And I remember there was a few murders in the 20 years that I worked there. Did you have any dealings with anybody that uh, ended up passing away while they were in the infirmary? Did you deal with any deaths? I did have a couple of deaths that happened while I was there. Most of them were not fight related um, because most of the time when they were pretty gruesome fights, they would do their best to get them up to the hospital. And so if they did die, they would actually die at the University of Utah or whichever hospital they had to go to quickest. Uh Um, The couple of deaths that I can remember that happened were one of them was just an old guy that it was his time. (laughs) So it was was not an unexpected thing. But we did have one that was fairly unexpected. It was a guy who was probably in his mid-40s. And he was in one of the exam, or not the exam rooms, but in one of the trauma beds, which is just in that first area when he came into the infirmary where they would do a lot of the examinations. He had complained about some chest pain uh, because he had just felt like he was at short, short of breath or anything, and they were doing an EKG on him. They had him hooked up to the machine. It had been taco night, which that anytime taco night happened, people would complain of chest pains because there would be a little spice in the meat. And <laughs> that's like realistically, we would get so many calls of people saying they were having chest pains, and it was just indigestion. So that's what we assumed it was. It was a particularly busy night. This inmate who came over regularly for uh, breathing treatments was talking to this guy from a a bench down the hallway, and they were just having a conversation. And next thing I know, everything got real quiet, and the guy's like, hey, this guy just stopped talking to me. What's going on? I walked in there. Guy was stiff. We had checked on him like a couple minutes before, and this dude was just gone. I quickly ran, got the medical staff, and said, we need medical staff in here ASAP. We started CPR. We started doing everything on him. I guess uh, I found out after the fact that he had uh, one of his ventricles and his heart just burst. And so wow. they said that there was nothing that they could have done. Like Even if he had been in open heart surgery at that point, he probably would have died because it was just one of those weird happen happen chance things. It was his time. <laughs> so that I don't is, think it was the tacos. <laughs> that is a hell of a fucking spicy taco. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> it blew his heart out. Normally yeah. people go to Taco Bell, I hear all the time, and it's something else that blows out. It's not yeah, the heart though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take it out on the toilet. Did that impact you, Joe? I mean, did you uh did you take that home? 
Yeah, I'm sure I did. I think any time that somebody passed away and like that first guy that passed away, like I actually did CPR on him and I've, I've had to do CPR on a few inmates, which isn't, I don't think that that's a normal thing in, in most people's experience in the prison right. because it's just not something that every unit has to deal with. Honestly, I hadn't thought of that story of that guy dying for a long time until just now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't think that it impacts me long term. But I mean, I think that any time I've had something like that happen, it's something that you take with you. You see somebody die. It's not a fun time. I'd worked one death of natural causes in dog block. Not not dog block. It was Charlie block. And it was four hours of overtime. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because I think I've already discussed this on another podcast. I was doing four hours of overtime. And one of the inmates came up and said, hey, you better check on the guy in the third tier in the shower. And then I ran up there, pulled back the curtain. And I'm like, oh, shit, his eyes are fixed and dilated. And he was slumped over in the shower against the wall. And uh, I think that's the same guy. Oh, really? I, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's the same guy. Cause it was a guy who was on the third tier of Charlie block and it was in the shower. That's probably the same guy. Well, this guy that wasn't talking when he got sent up there to the infirmary, this guy was already gone. The first story I told of just the old man who died. I think that there that night. Oh, okay. So we worked the same incident then. Cause this guy, they pulled him out of the shower and started CPR is they put him on the gurney and took him out of there. They had told me later on that, and he had an oxygen tank. Does that ring a bell? Yep. Yeah, yeah. That, that's him. Okay. We had we had to keep doing CPR all the way until the EMTs arrived because that, that is one thing with the infirmary that's a little different than most medical fields that I, in my understanding is that a nurse at the prison can't pronounce somebody dead. Right. Um, I think that there's just a conflict of interest there. So they it has to be like the EMTs that come in from the outside or an actual MD or PA that can make a death pronouncement. So we had to keep doing CPR on him, even though he was dead until the EMTs got there and declared it. I thought you were going to tell me that you had to keep doing CPR for three weeks until he made his parole date. It's like, okay, you're good. (laughs) See you later. Dump him in the parking lot. (laughs) That overtime, that overtime I would have gotten paid. That would have been worth it, right? (laughs) It's interesting the way that that whole prison operated is you're talking about different policies and such. I had worked down in dog block, as you know, for a while. There were certain guys that they would keep in Wasatch, like the guy that we were just talking away that unfortunately passed away. But there was other elderly or senior inmates, older guys that had to be kept close to the infirmary because they had different medical conditions. You don't want them over at Lone Peak or Promontory or something. You want them where you know medical can access them pretty fast. And this is just a really quick story of, again, the politics and sometimes working in that place is frustrating just because you have people without common sense that are in charge. I can't remember what year this was, but of course, you know, that place, they're always changing policies because somebody has a bright idea. There was a guy, and I'll bet you know this particular inmate, I don't remember his name, but he had a real bad breathing issue. He had lots of medical equipment in his cell, and he was a short little troll-looking guy. Does that ring a bell? You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Whatever condition he had, he had... Oh my, I'm going to vomit because I cannot do boogers and I can't do phlegm, Joe. So if I vomit <laughs> while we're doing this podcast, I apologize right now. But so he had... Mm, He had this machine that would extract, I guess, mucus out of his throat or mouth, or he would spit it into this like tub, this container. And man, 
It was always <laughs> like a third full, ew, and it was really yellow, yellow green. Oh, I would, I would never search the fucker's cell. I don't care if he had a nuclear bomb. I don't want to see that. <laughs> Just that. sat it next to that tub. Oh my god! But so one day they had changed the way that people are. When you're in prison, you are screened for certain things, whether it be education, substance abuse therapy, sex offender treatment, and so you have to. You're mapped for these sort of things, these obligations that you have to do while you're in prison before you're eligible to parole. This particular yeah. guy was a substance abuse issue. He had to go over to Lone Peak, I think it was. And he it was either Lone Peak or Promontory. But he's got all this medical stuff, and he's literally walking distance to the infirmary. And so yeah. we get an order one day, because they had changed the way that that worked, where it's like he's got to comply with his mapping, so he's got to be moved over to where these programs are offered. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy has got severe medical issues, and he's got to be in Wasatch because medical is going to say, no way. We don't care. Roll him up. Joe, it took four fucking hours, and it took three laundry carts with all of his stuff. (laughs) I had to, and of course, I had a lieutenant that had no balls. It would not fucking stand up for me and say, hey, he's absolutely right. This guy's medical issues are going to, you know, trump any other type of programming requirements. This guy shouldn't be moved. Nope. Roll him up. Roll him up. They said to roll him up. Roll him up. Four fucking hours, man. Wow. To get all this guy's stuff. We end up moving him, you know, and when he's like, well, I, I, I can't live over there. It's like, I know. I know. But that's what they're saying. So I guess medical is going to have to go over there 10 times a day to go visit you at this housing unit that's like a mile and a half away from the infirmary. So this is no shit. We get all this stuff. We move the transportation guys like, what the fuck is all this? It's like, "Uh, look, I I know. I know. And so the powers that be said, move him, move him, move him. They move him. (sighs) Two days later, he's back. I was going to say, how, how quickly does he come yeah, back? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very clearly medical says, no, no, he can't be yeah. over there. He's going to end up dying over there. Like he has to be yeah. by the infirmary. But that is the frustration of working in a place like that is you just have fucking morons in charge. It's like, will you yeah. stop and just look at what you're telling me to do? This makes no sense. This guy has to be close to the infirmary. In fact, one day I know the officer who went and checked on this particular guy looked in his cell and said, Hey, that dude's not moving. They called the infirmary and was like, Oh, him again. All right, we'll be down in a while. He had died. Wow. I, that, that surprises me that they wouldn't, that medical wouldn't have trumped it before it even moved. Cause we had one of the guys that, that was in the infirmary long term. He was a paraplegic quadriplegic. Like he, he had movements in his arms, but he couldn't do anything for himself. He was in there for a charge that he should have had sex offender. He should have been in the sex offender treatment program. Mm-hmm. And I know I got into it with someone from SOTP because in giving him his mail one day, I realized this guy's getting a magazine that was called reminisce. And it's like all about like little kids in the fifties. I just said, I don't, I can't in good conscience give this to this inmate. They're like, well, he's not part of our sex offender treatment program. We can't give him programming because he's in the infirmary. There's nothing we can do to stop it. It made me sick handing this magazine to this guy because it's like, you're in here for being a child predator. Here's wank material. Right. It's like handing me a playgirl. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't do anything with his arms, but still it's the principle. Just gross. Yeah. 
Did you hear about that story that happened down in A Block with the young kid? I think he was in his 20s. They had the Johnson bars down there in, in A Block. There was mm-hmm. A East and A West. And I don't know if you know this story, Joe, but there was a guy down there when they used to keep the diagnostics down there. And this guy was just in for the purposes of a diagnostic to see if he's suitable for prison or not. And mm-hmm. this kid was in his 20s, and I understood, if I get the story correct, that he was not going to be in there for very long. When they closed those Johnson bars, they pulled down these old bars, and there's so much momentum with the counterweights, this whole row of doors all close at the same time. I mean, you've been down there. You know what I'm talking about, and I'm only describing yeah. this for people that are listening. But there's a lot of momentum, and so they'll scream down the tier. It's four tiers up as well, but it's a mm-hmm. huge, massive building. It's something that you see like in movies like Shawshank Redemption. But they scream down the tier, like closing the doors, closing the doors, so get away from the doors, because once they crank that arm down, there's so much momentum. Well, this kid was yeah. fucking around, and he was sticking his head out the door and then pulling it in and sticking it out. And when they closed those doors, his head, it got pinched by the doors when they closed. He fell backwards. And he landed on his toilet. This is, again, the story that I'm being told by other people. The cellmate that he had basically told the staff. Apparently, when the door pinched his head, it caught his jawbone and it broke his jawbone. And it cut one of the arteries in his neck. And so he was sitting on the toilet and immediately could identify there's something wrong. And then blood started trickling out of like his mouth and his nose and and I guess when it severed that artery, it just, it started a free flow into his head. The other inmate screaming, man down, man down, man down. And medical was on it because this is in the same building as the infirmary. So they come down there to pull this guy out. And when they pulled him out, there was blood coming out of his head. Like they just couldn't believe. From what I was told, there was a trail of blood from a block all the way down the corridor up towards control one into the infirmary. And even if they had that kid on the operating table because it severed that artery, they couldn't have saved him. Yeah. Really yeah, I definitely heard, heard the stories. Yeah. But I wasn't, wasn't there at that point. And I would say, unfortunately, but I'm glad I wasn't there because, you know, seeing the gruesome stuff, it does make for good stories, but it's not always the best. <laughs> you probably witnessed some gruesome things in your time there. Yeah. So Quite, quite a few. <laughs> all right. Well, then let's talk. My go-to story that uh, is, <laughs> is, is always my favorite of what's the craziest thing you've seen at the prison. That's such a common. Was, do you get that still to this day? Do people ask I get you that, that all the time. Wow. My current job, while I was in my job interview, one of the people asked me about it. <laughs> they, they said, I have to decide, like, well, do I really want this job or do I want to tell them the story? <laughs> so yeah, no kidding. I, I think that this one, it kind of blows my mind that this happened. But as you know, inmates are creative. They have a lot of downtime. And Mm -hmm. so they create things to do. One of your previous guests lived in the same building, I think, as as this guy. He was in UNA2. Okay. Um, And he was getting ready to get out. I think he had a parole date coming up in a month or less than a month or something like that. He comes to the infirmary because he was complaining about some pain. And we bring him in there. I had to see what was going on with this one because they explained over the radio what they were bringing him over for. And he had taken some dice that he had made out of bread in his cell. And he decided he wanted to uh, surprise his girlfriend for when he got out with uh, <laughs> some 
body modification. What he did in his very unsterile cell in Uinta 2 is cut the shaft of his penis open, shove dice in a ring around on the inside of the skin, and then sew it back up so he would have a ribbed penis from the bread dice that he had made that were dry, stale bread. It, Needless it, it, to say, this got infected. Oh, God. <laughs> he dropped his pants, and we're sitting there looking at it, and, yep, this guy had, I don't know what he used for thread to ditch himself back up, but he had sewn his shaft back up, put the dice in there. It did not look good. I did learn from him because I asked him point blank. I said, why, why would you do this? Like, is this something that people do? I didn't know that this is actually a thing people do on the streets do where they'll get it done professionally in right, a, in a right. sterile environment with getting like stainless steel surgical balls sure. put in to, yeah. And so it's, it's just something where I, I wasn't aware of it, but I thought that it probably wasn't the smartest thing. And uh, so instead of surprising his girlfriend with this great gift he was going to give her, I guess he probably could say like, hey, my dick might fall off. I don't know. My God, can you even imagine like no pun intended, but man, that guy took a real roll of the dice. <laughs> if you know what I mean, Joe, what a gamble, right? You know, this actually brings up another story. You talking about your guy trying to do a makeshift modification to his shaft to stimulate his girlfriend when he gets out there was a guy and i don't know if you heard about this case i believe it took place in timpanogos this guy uh had raped a young kid and he really did a lot of damage to this kid's um butthole because he had a bunch of those stainless steel balls he'd gone through like the professional normal way that you would do it when he was out and he had a whole bunch of these stainless steel balls inserted in his shaft through the body modification thing to stimulate um, his girlfriend, I guess, or boyfriend, whatever. And he had raped this kid. And I think it was over in Temp when they actually had males in Temp. Body modification, not my thing. I've had lots of friends that have gotten into it. But I will tell you, I got, for the first time in my life, a tattoo, Joe. I don't know if you know that. Uh, on Instagram, I put pictures of the tattoo. I don't want to reveal too much, but you should check it out if you don't, if you haven't seen it. I, yet. I haven't checked it out. I'll have to take a look because it's pretty cool. I, uh... Another incident on Dog Block. Did you work anywhere around the time that there was that murder with the two roommates in Dog Block? But I'm sure the the infirmary was heavily involved with that because the one guy had killed his roommate, mm -hmm. and when they finally figured out what was going on, the the roommate was stuffed underneath the bunk. And when the medical staff pulled him out on the tier to start CPR, they tilted his head back to get an open airway and they couldn't get air in. But as soon as he tilted the head back, the, the inmate's neck was broken. The roommate had broken his neck. The string from the pin bag was so embedded in this guy's neck, they couldn't even see it to know to wow. cut it. I do remember that story. I wasn't there that night, though, so or that time. Yeah, that murder. I wasn't actually working when it took place. I had come in like the following day, but it was still uh, heavily involved with medical staff. I know that. Now, I know you've probably got some other stories that you wanted to share today. This is a story from an inmate that you're very familiar with. He, he bounced from there and you in a one section four. It was as much as I uh, tried to make sure that inmates were their people and, and you tried to do your best of like you've said in previous podcasts, our job wasn't to punish them. Our job was to make sure they didn't leave. Absolutely. <laughs> because, 
that's what they were sentenced to prison, not sentenced to be bothered by the staff. Mm -hmm. Um, This gentleman had some mental issues. He, from my understanding, he actually had fetal alcohol syndrome. In my mind, it's a really sad story because it's like he didn't have a shot from the start. He was born with being behind in the race. He was somebody that liked to paint um, his cell sometimes. When you're on suicide watch, you don't have any paint other than what your body can produce. (laughs) And so... He liked the color brown, I guess, because that was his favorite color to use. He painted himself up, painted his whole cell. We had a very full psych site this day, and he convinced a couple of the other guys that were there from UNAs that they were just there because they were trying to get moved. Like they weren't, they claimed to be having issues, but they realistically were just people that were trying to get the administration to move them. Like they Mm -hmm. admitted that to me. (laughs) He convinced those guys to also paint their cells which I didn't understand because it was like those people I don't think had mental issues, but you let the the guy who does convince you to. So we had four people at the same time that smeared shit all over their walls. Three of them cleaned it up. I, you know, I said, you guys can clean it up or we can bring the goon squad down and get you out, clean it up. And so they decided they were going to clean it up. Uh, The one inmate, he didn't. And so we did, we did have to go do a fourth cell on him. That's one of the worst fourth cells I think I've ever had to do because we had to completely suit up. Everybody's worried. I mean, because there's just shit everywhere and you don't want to get that on you. Of course. And my favorite part about this whole thing though, is the captain that we had, we'll, we'll call him Captain Pez Dispenser. I'm sure you know who he is. (laughs) (laughs) He was the watch commander that night, and uh, he and I got along great. He came down, and the entire time that we had him pulled out of the cell, and we were getting his cell cleaned up and getting everything out of there to make it safe for him to go back in, this captain kept this inmate's attention the entire time so he didn't try to get froggy with us or fight with us because he lectured him on how much fiber he needed to be eating because he could tell by the consistency of his shit that was on the walls that he was not having enough fiber in his diet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he, he, he made he made this inmate repeat to him how much fiber he needs to have every day and how to get the fiber and like make sure that you're eating fiber because it's healthy for you. And this inmate was just enamored by, wow, this guy actually cares about me. and He wants me to make sure I have enough fiber so my poop's better consistency. <laughs> this uh, this particular inmate, if it's the one I'm thinking of, did he have any type of deformity with his fingers or hands? Yes. Okay, I know who you're talking about. I had to deal with him in UNO one at one point and de-escalate him. And he had smeared the window of the cell. And I had to keep a really big distance between me and that window because I could see the grain inside his feces smeared on the window. But the smell was so unbearable, I didn't want to become a distraction because it was so hard not to dry heave. The smell... You could almost taste it in the air. It becomes so overwhelming. And when you're talking about multiple cells, I'm like, oh my God. The other three guys that joined in on this, Mm -hmm. they did did a half-assed job. I mean, they they weren't trying to seriously smear the stuff. It was like they just smeared a little on the wall. And as I walked by, I told these guys, like when they'd first come in, I would tell them, look, you treat me with respect. I'm going to treat you with respect. And when they do something like that, most of the time, I could just talk to him and be like, hey, knock that off. They would be like, okay, we're not going to get the rise out of him that we wanted. There's no point in continuing with this. But occasionally, you'd have inmates like this that would definitely take it to the limit. <laughs> but going back to the smells, because that is something that I, I have uh, to say personally, 
I think that I have a strong an advantage, and this is probably why I did so well in the infirmary. <laughs> Nothing really gets me sick. I know I've heard on your podcast about the ear cleaning. I definitely oh. smell that stuff. Vomit. I don't know if you've ever smelled lactulose, the medicine that they give people who have hepatitis C. No. Have you ever smelled that stuff? Nope. It helps the anyone who has hepatitis C, your brain can get ammonia buildup on it because your body's not processing it. Okay. And the lactulose helps take that out of your body. If they stop taking it, they'll go crazy. It's insane because they will be acting like they're a person on Mars. And then if you give them this lactulose in about five minutes, they're back to normal. Really? But the problem is if, if people get to a point where they can't take it because it's an oral medicine, there were a couple of times that medical staff had to give inmates a lactulose enema because oh. they wouldn't drink it. And the stuff would stay in for about 30 seconds and then they would just have lactulose diarrhea everywhere. And lactulose is a very distinct smell. If you ever <laughs> smell the stuff, especially if you ever smell lactulose diarrhea, that smell, I, as I'm saying this, it's in my brain. And it will never leave my brain. It's probably one of the most horrible smelling things, but that stuff didn't turn my stomach. Like I watch someone who vomit, I watch somebody puke or something and I smear shit or something. And for me, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, have a good day. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you definitely had the right personality and the right level of uh, immunity against like smells and visuals that I didn't have, Joe. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I liked working there because I got to see some cool stuff. And I know this this was a short a short story here. Um, I know you had talked about in a previous podcast seeing some gruesome injuries and different things. Talking to the guy on dog block that had to be close for medical reasons, we had an inmate out in the Oakers. Uh, he was in a wheelchair. He had a fake leg and he had a knee replacement that he had done when he was living in Mexico. Something went wrong with the knee replacement, like the apparatus in there, and he got an infection. Mm. And so they had to take care of it. It was probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen because in my mind, I know for most people, they probably don't think it's that cool. They were having the infection heal from the bone out. So every couple of days he had to come get his dressing changed. Okay. They would pull the dressing out of the top of his leg and there was a hole in his leg probably the size of like a half dollar 50 cent piece it went all the way down to the bone so you could just look oh, in there and my. see his mm. bone on the top of his leg and they would pack the dressing in there and, and pull out the old stuff and he was actually a decent inmate like he was never never rude or anything to any of the staff and he always had good stories for us while we were up there when he was up there doing his dressing changes it was pretty neat just to be able to look down there and, in my mind and say hey there's some guy's bone right there that's insane how much gauze did he take because i've seen it when somebody has an infection in a leg, and I remember there was one particular inmate over in Olympus, and he had a hole, and he had an abscess, but it wasn't down to the bone. But I remember they had to put the dressing inside that sterile water as they pack yeah. it, and then they take like forceps, and they slowly insert this really long piece of gauze because it has to close in from the inside out. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Okay. Yeah, exactly. It was exactly that. But I don't know how sentient. much they put in there. It was a lot. Like, cause I oh. saw them do it with other people with abscesses and like this guy had definitely much more put in there than most people because it was so deep. Wow. Did you see a lot of that with abscesses at working in the infirmary? A lot of dressing change and injuries and abscess and incisions. Did you see a lot of that? I imagine you did. 
Yes and no. Um, so like day shift, people saw a lot more of that because they would try to take care of all of that during the day shift when there's more staff. Right. Of um, so we would get people there who were like in emergent bases. I mean, I, I did my fair share of, uh, hey, you're staying till 10 o'clock in the morning because we don't have relief for you. <laughs> so I, I got to see my share of it. But I staying with the topic of the, the sights and smells, um, <laughs> this, <laughs> there was an abscess story that always sticks out in my mind. We had a guy who got who came in. I should probably preface some of this that for the listeners that aren't aware. But when somebody would get picked up on parole or a probation violation after hours, they would send them to the infirmary to get medically cleared before they would take them to UNA five. Right. So that I remember they, that. They just yeah, they made sure, you know, if they had to go to the hospital, the prison's not gonna accept them and they'll tell APMP or whatever police agency has them, you guys, it's your problem now. <laughs> so, of course, yeah. Um, this guy probably should have gone to the hospital. <laughs> he came in, he had been on the run for a while, and he complained to us and said, hey, I've got this medical issue. And so they said, okay, the prison will accept him, but we're going to keep him here. This doctor was on call, and he said, they told him he has an abscess, and I guess he'd been skin-popping heroin, and it had gotten infected. Ugh. He'd let it go for quite a while. This was probably the worst smell day. Every single person in the infirmary had put on masks before it was cool. <laughs> right, um, right. And they, <laughs> and they put on Vicks VapoRub under their their noses even because it Ooh. was so strong of a smell. Me, on the other hand, after the story was done, I decided it's time for me to eat dinner. And I ate dinner. <laughs> Clam chowder? No. <laughs> yeah. It was, no, it was a split pea soup. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So the guy, the guy's abscess was on his right leg, ass cheek. No joke. Probably the size of a softball. Like if you cut a softball directly in half, that deep as well. So the doctor came in and said, all right, let's drain this. The amount of fluid that came out of that thing. They had one of those, the buckets that your friend on dog block had. Um, <laughs> the big, the Gross. Pink yes. It filled that thing about half full of fluid. He was in one of those trauma chairs, so it was like a hospital bed. It looked like a waterfall coming over the top of the, the bed. Just Gross. the amount of stuff. And the doctor just squoze it all out, then said, okay, we're going to call this good. And then I found out the next day, they sent him up to the U. It actually, the abscess had, had fissured into his anal cavity. And so, like, that's why it smelled so bad, because it was infection mixed with blood, mixed with feces that had gotten mixed in there. And they had to do, like, major surgery on this guy to save his leg because wow. he had just let it get so infected. The good story is that I got to see it. It was a entertaining night for me, to say the least. <laughs> you know, when you describe something that big, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, a Capri Sun with that straw. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, squeeze it, Doc. Let's just stick that straw right in that little opening. Ugh. You know, I remember there was a guy that came in and his his legs were covered in abscesses and scars and open sores because he was a hardcore heroin addict. And I remember yeah. that the nurse couldn't draw blood off the guy. And the guy was so belligerent, angry because he was coming down off of his high. He said to the nurse, just let me fucking do it, okay? And of course, the nurse can't let him draw his own blood. You have to bring in the phlebotomist. But he was so angry. But he had sores all over his legs. He looked like that thing from the movie Seven was up there <laughs> with all the uh, air fresheners in the ceiling. Sloth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sloth. Yeah. That's what he looked like, his legs anyways. Pretty See, disgusting. 
if I would have been in, in your shoes there or the medical staff shoes, if he wouldn't have been an asshole, I would have just let him do it. We had a lady who came in on parole one time and they had to get a blood draw from her and she had shot all of her veins. She'd, she'd been mm. an IV drug user for years and they had, I think four or five people tried multiple times, could not get anything from her. And she was completely calm, nice. Like she wasn't freaking out or anything. She wasn't high either. She asked me, she said, hey, if you, get, if you hand me the needle, I'll get you a blood draw. And she was cuffed to the wall. And I said, okay. And she, no joke, without looking, lifted her arm up, stuck it in her armpit, and blood drew immediately. It was one of the more impressive things wow. I, I think I saw in there, where I was just like, wow, you know exactly where your veins are. So, And they drew the blood off of her. She went, spent her night over in Kemp, and everything was fine. But I, if she were being an, a belligerent asshole, like, or being aggressive in any way, like, there's no way we would have done that. Of she course. She was calm and... I had the corridor sergeant up there and two APMP people. So it's like, well, you know, what's she going to do with the needle <laughs> when she's kept cuffed to the wall? <laughs> so. that, wow. I definitely never saw that. All the nurses that did the blood draws over in the of 5 And there was a couple of times like, hey, I can do it. A guy would just suggest a hardcore addict. And for people of you that don't know what a hardcore addict will do, they know exactly whether it's underneath their fingernails, their temple, their dick in between their toes they know exactly where to get blood or where to shoot up yeah they do yeah any other stories that you need to to tell me about the infirmary i don't know if you dealt with this guy because it was someone coming from dog block and i don't know if it was when you were on dog block or you were still over at olympus or maybe you were actually at you and a five at this time i know we had a, a call from dog block one night and they said that they needed to send an inmate up who had something stuck up his ass we said, okay, like, I guess he was very cagey with them about what it was, how long it had been there or anything. So our understanding was that he had a, a pill bottle. So I thought, well, I don't know where he got a pill bottle, but okay. Um, he's got this small pill bottle up there. So they sent him up and he came up. Sometimes I, I put my foot in my mouth, Mark, and <laughs> this time was probably one of them. I had him come up there and I would always say this when I take somebody to an exam room, I would say, go ahead and hop on up there, sit down. And this dude just jumped up on the bed, slammed his ass right down on the bed, which I, I realized as soon as it hit, I was like, wait, you've got something stuck up your ass. I don't know if that's, maybe that wasn't the best uh, verbiage <laughs> for me to use. But come to find out, he had an entire shampoo bottle stuck up his ass. Oh, whoa. And they had to set him up for surgery because they couldn't get it out. I guess hearing from the officers that were working at the U, while this was going on, the surgeons up there even had issues because the forceps and everything kept slipping off the bottle. So I, I know that that's one that somebody through some back channels got a copy of the x-ray and we had it uh, printed out. I know you talked about the x-rays with the handcuffed keys and different things. We had yeah. one of them in the infirmary for a while and it was, you just saw this guy's pelvis and then you saw the entire shape of a shampoo bottle just going up in his, <laughs> his stomach area <laughs> where the where the shampoo bottle had been. Did he ever say why he did it? It was just like a sex toy. He was using it no, as a sex toy. He wasn't trying to hide contraband. It was just to be turned on. He said that he had done it before and had no issues getting it out. I guess he just stuck it in too far or it got slippery. My biggest question, and I, I know I asked the watch commander on this one, I said, well, if he has his receipt, does he get that back? Does he pay for it? <laughs> That's true. So, well, I remember over in Olympus, we would have guys that they would do it just for the purposes to act out. 
and there was one particular inmate that would shove things into his penis like he would scrape up like caulking on the corners of the floor like if he was in the bed cell where there's nothing in the cell he would find anything he would dig at the floor or get like paint chips whatever he could and shove them into his penis he should have been cellies with the guy with the dice like they would have got along just fine right right exactly they could have worked on each other but this same guy (laughs) his whole purposes was to act out and then get a ride and he was seeking attention and -hmm. even though it's very dangerous to his body and very harmful to his body he would get satisfaction about people having to cater to him and move him up to the emergency room and then they would have to do all these big medical procedures and of course the 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 price that it would cost the prison was thousands upon thousands of dollars that's how he acted out he was mentally ill because he would get attention through this stuff and that's why he did it it wasn't sexual it was like i'm going to act out then they're going to have to transport me to the medical center at midnight or whatever to uh-huh. to get this handled. Joe, one thing that you had brought up before we actually started recording today was you were talking about the manipulation of inmates in the infirmary and how they would use the infirmary to connect with each other. Because the male inmates and the female inmates cannot be housed in the same complex unless they were in the infirmary. Inmates would come over all the time we've caught inmates that were discussing like, hey, next weekend, let's try to have a a date in the infirmary. And so they would act out on a Friday night. So then they would get sent over and stay through the weekend because the medical staff isn't gonna release inmates on the weekend. They're not gonna do any moves. So they would have a three-day date where they could yell at each other from the psych side. It's interesting that these people, even though a lot of them are low functioning, or like you said, the fetal alcohol syndrome, for the other person. But anyways, these people learn how to manipulate. And so they become masters at it. People don't connect the dots until they start to see patterns and then they start to catch on to what these people do. They get bored. A lot of them are brilliant. It's entertainment for them. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, in most of these situations, those two inmates, they're in max. And so they're locked down 23 hours a day. What else is there to do? In some ways, it's like, I don't blame them. This is their form of watching a TV show. (laughs) that's so true there was another guy i imagine you had over there pretty regularly he would get frustrated and i don't know what his probably was a child molester he ended up getting murdered in olympus he would always bang his head when he would act out and so you'd walk up if you were doing a count or a, a tear check he'd always have this gigantic scab on his forehead that's where he would pound his head on the door on the wall do you know who was, I'm talking was, about? I think I I mean, we had a couple of people that were like that. One of them spent most of his time in UNF1. Yep. I think he was more frequent. Was this guy the, the bald guy? He had hair, but he had a, I mean, he had a receding hairline and he wasn't helping it by constantly banging his head and getting this big scab. He was killed over in um, Olympus. His roommate, I'd heard, strangled him and then stomped a big pin into his head. I'm trying to think of who who it might have been, but I, I'm sure I dealt with because I I'm I, sure I did, did plenty of shifts. I did plenty of shifts in in Olympus when I was a utility as well. So I mean, I, I probably had interactions with them. But one of the gentlemen that would always bang his head. I know that this guy died, but I thought that he died when he was out on APMP's custody. But, oh, parole. Um, okay. The guy that would bang his head all the time. He he would try to get a rise out of me, and that's he's one of the few people that we actually four pointed. Because that was something that they just didn't do anymore. There was one night where he was banging it enough where 
the watch commander said enough's enough and got in touch with medical and they all okayed it. And we actually four pointed them. And once we four pointed them, he told us, he said, holy shit, you guys were serious. I didn't think you could do this. We said, well, we told you like 20 times that this is what's going to happen and kept doing it. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) You you bring up a a strong point that I want to actually ask you about. I know when I first started the prison, four points were very common. If somebody acts out, you know, you Mm -hmm. had the board and you had these special leather mitts, you would actually chain them to this metal board in their cell. And then you had to do a range of motion like every 30 minutes or something. I can't remember how often it was, but it's something like that. It was like 30 minutes or every hour. You had to let their arms free so they could move their wrists around and let their legs move for a minute. And They got away from that whole process, you said? They very seldomly did it. I think they were afraid of lawsuits. And right. I think that after that happened, like when people saw like there were other people that were on the psych site at the same time that were, as we call them, frequent flyers. They saw that we meant business and didn't act up as much. And this guy, when we four-pointed him, I'd had a lot of experience with him. He is one of the very few inmates where I did have to actually use my OC spray on him. Um, oh, really? In a forced cell situation, we had to OC him. He 100% wouldn't comply. And, and he had mental issues. And it's sad to say that, you know, not that he shouldn't have been in prison for what he, whatever he did. I didn't know what he did to get in there, but it's sad that, that maybe the resources weren't there to help him avoid that in the first place. He and I had a decent rapport most nights. He would start with the head banging. And like, especially if he was there on a weekend, I would go up to him and I would just say, hey, look, I'm, I'm not going to deal with this. Like, and if you're banging your head, that's not hurting me any. And I can see that you're if you're banging your head and you're not causing blood, I'm not going to have to come in here and put our lives at risk because you're doing this. You're on camera. We're watching you. We know that you're still alive if you're banging your head. So I don't know. You're going to have a headache. (laughs) Right. You know, as we're talking about different restraints and a way to handle an inmate that's acting out, it becomes very frustrating for correction staff when you have an inmate that has decided, well, I'm going to self-harm. Whether Mm -hmm. they're mentally ill or not, your job or our job was to protect them from themselves. As we're talking about this, it reminded me of, they used to have a chair, a special chair that you could put somebody in that was acting out, and it was called the chair. I pulled up the article here from Deseret News, and this is March 25th, 1997, and there was an inmate by the name of Michael Volant who was 29, and he was acting out. Valance death has brought to the forefront the increasing use of restraining devices at treatment or punishment for mentally ill and non-mentally ill inmates. And the ACLU was involved with this particular case, but he was put in the chair. It was ordered by the doctor to be put in the chair until he would no longer be of harm to himself. Well, it looks like he was in the chair for 16 hours. That seems like it would be pretty excessive. He didn't die of a heart attack. He was induced to a heart attack, said the inmate's mother. They no longer use the chair after this case. And I don't know how much the state of Utah, if they had to pay out some type of settlement, I imagine they did. I don't see a settlement amount in this particular article. I know that those were stories from the past as far as medical staff and things like that. I always talked about the use of that. But yeah, we we never saw that. And in the entire time I worked there, I think that we used the four-point restraint at one time. I think the board, right? The board, yeah. 
and I don't know if it was just the design. I don't know why they decided to, since they weren't going to use the chair, it was a liability. They started to use that board where they would, yeah. they would pin them down to the board. But again, there was very strict rules on range of motion. Each mm -hmm. limb has to have been released after so much time so that they could move their arm. The chair and him not be able to move was one of the reasons for the, uh, for the heart attack. But this particular inmate, he was diagnosed as schizophrenic, uh, age 19. And he had been convicted in 87 of stabbing his grandmother to death in Price, Utah. I thought I'd heard a rumor that they still had the chair somewhere, but it wasn't. I worked on Charlie Block after I left the infirmary, and I, mm -hmm. I swear I heard somebody say that that's where they had it stored was somewhere up there. But I'd, I'd actually heard that too, and a lot of times they have to hang on to it in case there's other litigation that comes about as a result. Oh, that of makes this. sense. They've got to hold on to it. Uh, on another podcast, I had talked about a former officer that had rolled a prison transport van. And the inmates yeah. weren't restrained in, and the, the inmates were thrown out of the window when he rolled the van, reaching for a bag of chips. That van, I remember seeing it over in one of the yards for that the state owned for, it was like 10 years after it happened. They were never going to release it in case litigation comes back. It's still evidence. Even if the, the rumor was true or not, I used it when I worked on Charlie Block. I told the inmates, like, well, I've got the chair here if you act up. And that, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just as a threat, like, don't fuck with me, guys. Yeah. I do have one one more. It's a firmery slash Charlie Block story. Okay, from, let's hear it. It goes with sometimes, you know, inmates are people. Uh, sometimes those people are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Right before I, I went to Charlie Block, we had an inmate who was on Charlie Block. I don't know how familiar you were with like their yard and everything, but they had a garden there and they, they had a gardener and he grew great vegetables. The rule was like the captain over Charlie block. It was a privileged block. They would grow what they could and they would split it up amongst the unit. So everyone got to partake in some, there was a guy that had lived there for a real long time. And he decided that he wanted more vegetables than everyone else. And so he, in the Charlie block yard, that it was a fenced area between where the garden was and where the yard was. And he decided to crawl under the fence so he could go snag some zucchinis or a melon or something like that. The prison's a dirty place. Oh, yeah. He uh, had gotten a cut from the fence crawling under it on his leg. And because he didn't want to get in trouble for sneaking vegetables, uh, he decided to keep his mouth shut and not go see the medical or anything like that. And that cut got infected and that infection spread throughout his body and he died. Because he was really? trying to steal some vegetables from the garden. Yeah. It was like right as I was transferring, I'd moved over there and I said, well, where's this guy? He used to always come down to the infirmary. He would come get like medical stuff late at night or something. He, he had something where he would come walk down the stairs and grab a pill. And the inmates were like, oh, you didn't hear? <laughs> Explain the whole story to me. The guy got an infection and kept his mouth shut because of it and ended up dying over it. So how old was the guy? Oh, he was probably late 50s. Maybe early 60s. He wasn't a, an old, old timer. He'd been in the prison for a long time. That's crazy. That That's like one of those urban legends. And then like to actually hear the real story. You'll hear things like that. And you're like, oh, there was this one guy crawled under a fence. He cut his leg and he didn't get treated and he died. And that's all you'll yeah. hear of it. But to yeah. actually hear details of it, that's crazy. I'd heard that at one time that they used to have actual pork chops at the state prison but an inmate used the pork chop bone and stabbed another inmate. And, uh, well, you ruined it for everybody because no more pork chops <laughs> on the bone. 
And I don't know if there's truth to that or if that's just some story from another state that it happened in the Utah State Prison because you hear those stories as well. I, I think I've heard that rumor before. So, I mean, yeah. who, who knows if that's true or not. They, they didn't have pork chops when I was there. So I'll have to ask Sonny because I bet Sonny would know. But there was also an inmate nicknamed Pork Chop, and he had a really big belly, and his belly would flop over. And he used to take food. He would work in the kitchen, and he would uh -huh. bring food back to the unit. And he would hide it under the flap of his belly, <laughs> and that's how so he would get it get, back to his unit. He'd share it with his belly, and get you'd have a little extra cheese. Oh my God! <laughs> Can you imagine? So nasty. <laughs> well, Joe, that pretty much wraps up our episode talking about the infirmary. I appreciate you coming on the show. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. You going to come back and do it again at some point? I'd be happy to. That's awesome. So I'm going to end this session the same way I end it every week, and that is to tell you to be good, and if you can't be good, be good at it. And if you're sitting in prison, you're not good at it. Good night, everybody. Yeah.